Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! In this episode, the Society Pages regular contributor Lisa Gulia interviews Professor Susan Terrio about her new book, Whose Child Am I? Unaccompanied, Undocumented Children in U.S. Immigration Custody. Together, they consider the tensions built into an immigration system designed to both provide care for child detainees and prevent them from living in the country illegally. Dr. Terrio suggests that the government's treatment of these children reveals a great deal about how we think about childhood, innocence, and access to the American dream. Susan, I just wanted to start the conversation today. Um, if you could talk a little bit about how you chose the title for this work. Alrighty, I'd be glad to. First of all, the first part of the title, Whose Child Am I?, is a question about the thousands of Central American and Mexican kids who have left home in search of refuge uh, from violence, uh, abuse, abandonment, neglect, and to seek family and opportunity in this country. So the first part of the question asks, who are these kids? What is their family history? Why are they leaving? Where do they belong? And who has the responsibility to protect and help a vulnerable population when they cross the U.S.-Mexico border and enter the U.S. Uh, without legal status? But the second part of the, the title, Undocumented Unaccompanied Children in U.S. Immigration Custody, is in fact an answer to that question because it looks at a part of the immigration detention system that the American public really knows very little about, and that is the special system that was created in 1997 and um, has been operated by the Office of Refugee Resettlement since 2003 for young people who are apprehended at the border or in the interior of the country and are designated as unaccompanied children. So it asks uh, how are they placed, what are the criteria for placement, what happens to them after apprehension, what does detention in a closed federal facility look like, what are the mechanisms for their release? And for those young people who are lucky enough to be released, have legal status, how do they build lives in this country? Um, and the other thing I think it's really important to emphasize for the American public is not only do people know very little about this special detention system for minors, but they also don't realize that once a young migrant is apprehended, there are two immediate consequences when they have been designated as unaccompanied. They are put into mandatory detention in federal facilities, but they are also put into removal proceedings in federal immigration courts. And the title also talks about the process whereby they're designated as unaccompanied. And the definition of that refers to young people who enter without legal status, are under 18, and have no parents or close biological relatives or legal guardians who are able or willing to take care of them in this country. Uh, that sounds like a very sort of straightforward definition, but in fact the process of designating certain young people as unaccompanied is rather complicated. And what my research showed um, is that from the point of apprehension there are officials from the enforcement branches of our immigration system who do the initial screenings and they are dealing with young people who have endured 
arduous journeys. They're often terrified, they're, they're exhausted, they're traumatized, and they have no particular reason to trust immigration authorities who are questioning them about their family backgrounds. So that the information that becomes part of a government file is often incomplete, misleading, or just simply incorrect. And what I saw uh, in my research is that that blanket term, which is a term of art and law, unaccompanied alien child, in fact refers not just to one but three different populations. So it does refer to, to young people who really do not have family in this country to take care of them. That's the first population. The second population involves young people who actually do have family in this country, whose parents for a variety of reasons had to leave the home country, come here, many of them without authorization, to work and, and uh, send remittances home so their children could have food and clean water. But then there's a third population that many people know nothing about, and that is young people who were brought to this country by their, with their parents and have spent most of their childhood years in the United States and are therefore socially and culturally American, and who for a variety of reasons when they're going through adolescence come to the attention of child welfare authorities, domestic authorities in this country, or the juvenile courts, and then through those systems are identified to the immigration authorities. And when, in fact, they do have contact with those authorities and they know that they're living with parents who are undocumented, they're often afraid to say that they, in fact, have families in this country. And then that will trigger a designation of them as unaccompanied and, and uh produce their diversion into this special detention system. So, and finally, there's, I think, the, the, the title also says something very definite about the balance of power. When, when children are designated as unaccompanied, uh, the government assumes that, in fact, there are no family members in the United States um, who are able to take care of them unless they, the, the children and families can prove to the contrary. And so what happens when the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the government agency that operates this program, when they have jurisdiction for this population, they assign themselves as the legal guardian and make all the decisions about children's care, about the, their educational and social services, about the legal screening that they will get, about their possibility for release, etc. But at this, so on the one hand, the government assigns itself as the, their legal guardian, but on the other, it puts them through the through the Department of Justice and the Executive Office of Immigration Review, puts them into removal proceedings and prosecutes them for unlawful awful, unlawful uh, residence. So it's a lot to, to sort of say in answer to your question about the title, but I think it's important to recognize what the consequences are and um, the fact that the designation of unaccompanied uh, children and youth is not a straightforward um, process. Mm -hmm. Right. I think you get into the complexity that title catches those multiple populations and the multiple systems, right, that, that youth are caught in. Um, which makes me want to ask, this is an incredibly complex project. How did you keep track of all of these different parts and systems? I'm just imagining an office covered in papers and flowcharts <laughs> everywhere. Yes, absolutely. No, it was, I mean, and that's one of the thing. I had things, I had a very uh, ambitious research agenda, which was to do an ethnography of a very complicated centralized bureaucratic system. Uh, and, the, and there are, in fact, a number of moving parts. And it did require that I sort of divide it into three sections. So 
there was the custodial system, which is the way the government authorities talk about the detention centers. So that was one part that involved visits all over this country to sit to 20 of the at the point at which I started the um, the uh, uh, research was in 2009. And at that point, there were 39 closed detention centers. So I got permission from the government to get inside and to conduct interviews and to observe conditions on the ground. So that was the first part. The second part, because of the immediate consequences that I talked about just a few minutes ago, um, they're, they're, the initiation of removal proceedings in the immigration court system required that I look at that piece as well. So I got permission from the chief immigration judge in Falls Church, Virginia, pending also approval of individual judges to observe immigration proceedings, both um, the master calendar hearings, which is the first appearance in immigration court, as well as merit hearings um, that are decided in an adversarial process with immigration judges. And I also uh, interviewed 31 sitting and uh, retired immigration judges to get their perspective on a system that um, you know, they find challenging. And then the third piece, of course, because I did not uh, want to interview young people who were in detention, um, was identifying young people who had been in detention, were released, were over 18, and had legal status, so that they were in a position to speak comfortably about their experiences, or to speak without undue stress, I should say, about their experiences in detention. And um, those were long-term, in-depth interviews. So yes, there were many moving parts, and um, it was challenging, but I felt that to do justice to the complexity of the system, I had to look at these three parts. And I think one of the things that I'm proudest of, uh, that is, in, in fact, the center of the book, are the stories of the the, the uh, children and youth who made the decision to leave home, journeyed across the state of Mexico, across the border, were apprehended and put into detention, and then ultimately released. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about doing those interviews with youth? Because you said a couple different things, right? You said that they had initial encounters with authorities in the United States that were very adversarial. Um, and so there are these issues of trust with adults here, right? And you also said you didn't want to interview children in detention. So can you talk kind of about establishing rapport and how, how you carried out those interviews? Okay. Now, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, the issue of trust is central to any kind of ethnographic inquiry and to any kind of ethnography, because it's a very personalized form of research. Um, and it does depend on a rapport that's established between the interviewer or the, the researcher and the person whose world you're trying to understand, whose choices you're trying to understand. But I have to say, they were very distrustful. Even young people who spent a relatively short amount of time in detention felt uh, humiliated by it, stigmatized for the most part, uh, and felt that it was an enormous stigma to have to talk about detention. And one of their primary motivations for doing it was that they thought by sharing their experiences, it could help young people who come after them. There was also a sense that they didn't sort of explicitly mention, but that I think is really important for them to be able to take control of a narrative that had been and continues to be controlled by many adult authorities was very empowering. So for them to take control and to speak in their own voices about what happened to them, to be able to be critics of the system as well as to identify the opportunities and advantages that they had, not only gave meaning to what was often a traumatizing experience, but also allowed them to 
to put them in the position of easing the way for the people who come after them. So again, the primary motivation for many of them, despite not knowing me initially very well at the beginning, was that they wanted to help other people. Um, so I wanted to jump to the beginning of the book and you know, you start with some of their stories. You open the book with a discussion of the American dream. So can you talk about how you decided to frame the book with that? Sure. Um, you know, to my great surprise, um, that was not something that I asked the young people. That was something that most young people that I talked to already knew about. They had very definite ideas about this country as a place of laws, as a place that is associated with rights and freedom, and they all knew and spontaneously mentioned the American dream. Um, the other thing that I was struck uh, by when I was doing these on-site uh, visits to a variety of detention centers was the presence of and use of the American dream as a metaphor and as an inspiring message by federal staff. They did so in a number of ways by having sort of inspirational messages, posters. Um, and also, I start the book with um, a specific class, a writing class, where one of the volunteers in a detention center in Southern California asked the young kids who had just been detained and were admitted into this class to write a short piece in Spanish, which was their native language, about what the American dream meant to them. And I think it's really powerful because it is at the center of our master narrative in this country, despite the obvious sort of gap between the reality of increasing socioeconomic inequality, we remain in sort of very powerfully drawn to this narrative, which you know, is about the openness of social class, about unlimited opportunity, faith in progress in the future, as well as the ability of individuals to succeed by their own individual efforts. And it's no accident that, you know, it's very prominent in media stories about immigration, in literature, in public discourse. And once I started thinking about it, I saw it everywhere. So it seemed to me that, you know, as a narrative, it was very important as something that the young people talked about um, when they thought their American dream had collapsed after they'd been uh, apprehended in an often sort of antagonistic way. But also what surprised me, even given the many trials and tribulations that they endured starting from their departure from home through their journey, etc., was they remained extremely optimistic, um, even given, you know, their relative disadvantages in terms of education, in terms of social and political capital, even after they had legal status, they remained very optimistic about what they could, <coughs> excuse me, what they could accomplish in the United States and what the United States could do for them. So I, I thought it was really important to, uh, to include that. And, and the other sort of population that I talk about to some extent in the book, um, I wanted to draw parallels between the dreamers, those young people who, you know, never came to the attention of immigration authorities, but were brought here as young people, have grown up in this country, and are now everywhere. They're in our, our high schools, our colleges, and our universities. And um, they are, they were showcased very explicitly in, in a number of political campaigns. Uh, and they are explicitly referred to as the dreamers because of their faith in the American dream and their, their belief in their ability um, to realize their potential if only given the opportunity to, to be permanent and legal residents of uh, this country. But I mean, the, the other thing that I, that I think is a central argument in the book is in fact um, because of 
a series of very punitive immigration laws that were voted uh, beginning in the late 1980s and 90s, the American dream is at risk, um, not only for immigrants, but uh, for many Americans who have experienced downward mobility and who are, particularly in the wake of the 2008 economic crisis, don't have the same possibilities for not only for themselves, but for bettering their children's futures. Right. Yeah, I think you're getting at that that piece of the American dream, right? That's about the future and, and children. Um, and I think you hinted those things here. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more explicitly about kind of the main ways we in the U.S. typically think about children and about how those ideas are conflicting in the treatment of these youth who are detained. Right. Um, so, yes, I think one of the, you know, sort of central themes in my book and many other people who have talked about the this, this system from inspector generals to uh, reports to NGOs is the tension between the attempt to protect and the emphasis on security and enforcement. So on the one hand, um, and this goes throughout the system, not only the detention centers, but in the immigration court system, there, there is a recognition that children are vulnerable, they need special accommodations um, for their immaturity, they need um, to be protected from the things that they're escaping, and they need to be sort of nurtured in some, but, but that goes along with um, a conception that's largely based on middle-class American understandings of childhood as, you know, a period that, you know, where children are dependent, they're largely passive, they have very relatively little agency, and it's adult who need to be making decisions for them. So on the one hand, that, and that's very much a Western notion of childhood as a protected and innocent stage um, that, you know, interesting abruptly interestingly abruptly ends uh, you know the bright line of the of, of the age of 18 so on the one hand there is a recognition when they're in detention that they have to be given basic you know educational social services their health has to be monitored their behavior has to be uh, uh, monitored as well so so there is a recognition that you know that's an important component of, of the protection of childhood but on the other hand when you look at the way these young people have been placed in a detention system that includes three different security levels, you see to what extent security and enforcement remain an enormous consideration. That in fact, one of the primary mechanisms for placing them in the uh, detention system, and this was true um, until this past summer when the system was overwhelmed by huge numbers of uh, childhood child arrivals. Um, so there was, so, the placement decisions were actually based on risk assessments. So, you know, did they have a criminal history? Had they had any involvement in a juvenile justice system? Did they have affiliated gang? Did they did they have suspected gang affiliations, et cetera? So those kinds of security considerations were paramount in the placement of children in the system. And they, and they, they go against a mechanism to protect and nurture. Uh, and, and organizing a system by security levels itself and a system that is organized on a penal model um, where there are controlled entry, exit, and movement through these centers where um, there are there is continuous supervision, 24-hour surveillance, where there are line-of-sight checks that depend on the security level. All of those things sort of speak against a system that purports to be primarily about protection. 
Yeah. So you cover sort of those ideas about protecting and nurturing children and then children, you know, as risks and the security containment. Can you also talk about the piece where, you know, you talk to a lot of youth um, and get a lot of information about how, you know, that they do very adult things to come here and that they also, you know, want to work to support their families. I think that's another Absolutely. aspect. Absolutely. And um, uh, one of the things that's important, to, I mean, one of the ways in which their narratives open a window on different conceptions, different cultural conceptions of childhood, is in fact the way that they saw themselves and their roles with respect to their families. Um, in many places in the developing world, and particularly in Central uh, South America and Mexico, children work from an early age to support their families. They do work in the household and they work outside um, in various remunerated and non-remunerated activities and that kind of contribution is normalized um, and particularly in a, in a you know in settings where you know the whole family has to contribute in order to put food on the table so in many instances the kids that I talked to had left because they'd either been abused abandoned neglected or they were fleeing violence uh, or they absolutely couldn't su support themselves or their families so they worked and they and and many of them found it really sort of not only frustrating but anxiety provoking when they were put into a system where they were once again treated as children and this, and federal staff were very explicit about saying that these kids had didn't had lost their childhoods they needed to reclaim a stage of childhood that they had missed by virtue of growing up in a place where childhood wasn't recognized as a distinct stage of development. So many of them actually felt incredibly guilty when they were put in a situation where they were expected to spend X number of hours in school in detention, where uh, they w w had sort of occasional pizza parties, where they had occasional outings. So they felt guilty at, you know, being forced to participate in um, a, a sort of a, a regimen where they, on the one, the, on one, on the one hand, they were treated as children when they themselves viewed them, their their roles and their responsibilities to their families as adult responsibilities, and they 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 felt that you know if they were in detention, weren't going to school and weren't working, they were not doing what they needed to do to help their families. So again, a sort of um, a contrast between different cultural conceptions of childhood, and then the way in which the system is is schizophrenic. On the one hand, treating them as kids who you know need to be in school, you know, and some of some of them hadn't ever been in school; they were street children. So sort of doing that was was, you know, stressful. Yes, many of them did understand how important education would be, but the more pressing concern was helping their families um, by working and um, to put, putting food on the table and providing them with clean water. I think kind of the last two questions I had, and you can kind of decide what, what, what would be more interesting for you. I had the question about quantifying experience versus telling these case stories, or we can just talk about policy recommendations. Um, I, I, ha I really want to answer your question about policy recommendations. I think that's really, really important. Um, first of all, I think that the United States um, is really at odds both with our domestic and international practice with regard to detention as a first response 
versus a last resort. There is an abundant academic research on the, you know, the negative effects of detention, um, as well as the negative uh, uh, effects of being put in a detention system without without a set endpoint, um, and being put into large-scale detention facilities. And one of the things that we saw developing um, starting in 2012 in, in the scramble to put more facilities online to accommodate increasing numbers of child arrivals was more large-scale detention centers. That has been shown to be particularly problematic. It's more difficult to assess individual needs, to develop individual case plans, um, to adequately screen kids when you have very large detention centers. Can and you paint a picture of what a very large detention center would be? Would be you know over two hundred kids. Um, so it has to be it has to be you know rigidly organized, very regimented. There have to be behavior modification programs that you know, that you know are in place and that really make it very difficult for young people um, to stay there for any any length of time. And the other thing I think is incredibly important. For young, for children and youth under 18, we absolutely have to fund legal representation. It's clear how much of a difference this makes, um, whether they're just asking for voluntary departure or they really have a legal basis for seeking, for getting uh, legal relief. They, we should also be funding child advocates for the reasons that I've mentioned. Um, and to ensure the fair adjudications because, you know, mandatory detention and removal proceedings, there has to be a recognition that we need more um, well-trained uh, immigration judges. Um, and um, after their release, um, what, what's interesting is we, we will spend, it's estimated, $2 billion in 2015 for this large-scale and continually expanding uh, detention system. But after kids are released, unless they have special immigrant juvenile visa, a visa and are in an unaccompanied refugee minor program, which is a relatively small uh, program, we don't track what happens to them. We don't provide them with long-term follow-up services. So it seems to me um, really, uh, really awful that um, we put most of our money into a detention system um, instead of seeking alternatives to detention, adequately screening kids, and for those who are released and uh, will be living in the country, we need to provide them with some follow-up services. Um, and finally, I, you know, I, I, this isn't a policy recommendation so much as it is a sort of cautionary tale for, you know, policymakers. Um, you know, and we didn't talk about this, but uh, in in the move from that um, that gave jurisdiction for this vulnerable population to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, you know, there was litigation. Uh, the government had been sued by uh, NGOs in California because of the way young Salvadorans who were fleeing the Civil War, and um, that was another example of a mass migration in the 1980s, because of the way they were treated. And after extensive years of litigation, the Supreme Court in 1993 essentially ruled 
that, you know, automatic detention for unspecified and sometimes prolonged periods of time is perfectly legal. Um, and I think uh, that raises enormous challenges for our American democracy. The constitutional right to due process and equal protection, regardless of your legal status, the right to unjust, the right to not be detained in, in uh, government detention, as well as the state's responsibility for the welfare of the child. And, and finally, I think that, you know, because there has been an assumption because the immigration system is not a criminal justice system, it's a civil administrative court. I think there is an assumption that is wrong that the immigration detention system that accompanies it is also civil in orientation. And I think we have adequate proof to show that for both adults and young children, well, young people under 18, regardless of the reforms that have been instituted, it is basically a penal incarceration system. Thank you, Susan. Sure. So this was Professor Susan Terrio from Georgetown University talking about her new book, Whose Child Am I? Unaccompanied, Undocumented Children in U.S. Immigration Custody.